This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. Today on the program, we have a real legend here with us. She is an award-winning journalist, a best-selling, 10-time best-selling author, a television host, and motivational speaker. Joan London has been a trusted voice in North American homes for more than 40 years, and for nearly two decades... Joan London greeted viewers each morning on Good Morning America, making her the longest-running female host ever on morning television. London continues to be one of America's most recognized and trusted personalities, which has really made her a sought-after speaker for events all across the country. And as an ardent health and senior advocate, London has testified before the Food and Drug Administration advocating mandatory mammogram reporting and the Congressional House Ways and Means Committee advocating for the Family and Medical Leave Act. London is also the host of the Washington Post podcast series, Caring for Tomorrow on the Future of Healthcare. She also hosts the PBS television series, Second Opinion with Joan London, which premiered, I believe, in March of this past year. And additionally, London has become the ambassador to the Pointner Institute Media Wise for Seniors program, which educates individuals over 50 on media literacy, separating fact from fiction online. And as part of the sandwich generation, I found this the most fascinating. London's demographic is really far reaching. (laughs) She is the mother of seven, including two sets of teenage twins. And like many boomers in America, she's juggled being a working mom while caring for an aging parent. And she brings this experience to her role as the spokesperson for the nation's leading senior referral service, A Place for Mom a company helping caregivers and families find the right care and resources for their loved ones. One of the most visible women in America, London has graced the covers of more than 60 magazines and book covers. Wow. And her newest book, which I just mentioned in the green room, I absolutely adore. Why did I come into this room? A candid conversation about aging quickly became a New York Times bestseller. It's really fabulous. I loved it. And I laughed out loud and and I just couldn't get enough of it. It's almost like when you eat a book. That's how I felt about this book. Why did I come into this room? So in June of 2014, London was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer and eternal optimist. She turned her diagnosis into an opportunity to become an advocate, of course, and help others. She's a very outward focused person. She chronicled her experience in her memoir, Had I Known, and London continues to interact with North Americans daily on her website, joanlondon.com. Joan London is so outward focused, and she served as a national spokesperson for many organizations. Her books include her latest bestseller, Why Did I Come Into This Room? A Candid Conversation About Aging, Had I Known, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Family Caregiving, Growing Up Healthy, Protecting Your Child from Diseases Now Through Adulthood, Wake Up Calls, Abandon the Road is Not the End of the Road, 
Joan London's two great books about food and dieting. Joan lost 50 pounds, and I can't wait to hear about that later. Her two books, Healthy Living and Joan London's Healthy Cooking, Mother's Minutes, Your Newborn Baby, and Good Morning. I'm Joan London. Joan London truly exemplifies today's modern working woman. Joan, it's such a delight. Welcome to Finding Your Bliss. I, I'm tired just listening to that. I, you know, there are times I swear that I look back and think, wow, I got up at 3.30 every morning, Monday through Friday for 20 years, and had three babies while doing that. Like, is that actually possible? Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I did it somehow. Is you put one foot in front of the other. It's it's actually, it's so incredible. And and you are really, truly one of the most inspiring and very beautiful inside and out as, oh, as a person. And I've seen you speak at the ICRF event in yeah. uh, in Toronto recently. You were yeah. absolutely wonderful. And, uh, and I know you do 20 speaking engagements a year. Yeah. And we'll get to that. But anyway, again, congratulations on your 10th book. Why you. did I come into this room? a candid conversation about aging. As I mentioned, I laughed out loud. I loved it. What I really felt was your passion and curiosity in all of your words. What inspired you and motivated to really sink your teeth into this subject of aging and spend six years writing this book? Yes. You know, I've always written about whatever was authentically going on in my life. Like, you know, I did Good Morning, I'm Joan London, you know, years ago, but then I had lost all this weight. You know, I was turning 40. I'd had three kids. I was on that, you know, fast track, like the little hamster wheel. And I just hadn't lost it all. And I just decided, you know what it was? I remember two things happened. Number one, we had a representative on Good Morning America one morning from the American Heart Association. And they brought along like a, a quiz so that our viewers could assess their cardiovascular risk. And as I'm like, you know, going through all these different risks and doing the questions, I'm thinking, I'm totally failing this. That just really was like a wake-up call. I, it was an aha moment, which is ironic since it was the AHA. Um, and then I was actually just turning 39, not turning 40. I was turning 39 and I saw a magazine cover. I think it was Cosmo or Ladies Home Journal. It had the three Charlie's Angels on it, which was actually when they were the Charlie's Angels. So that tells you how long ago it was. The headline was Fit, Fabulous, and 40. Yes, I remember this. I was like, I want to be that. (laughs) So I said, you've got one year. You're just turning 39. You've got one year. And I literally like gave myself a swift kick in the behind and started working with a nutritionist and started working out with a trainer. And I almost took it on, swear to God, if I actually had time for it second or third job, but I took it on as a job because it was, you know, I, all of a sudden I really, when I started to get serious about it, I thought in like 20, 30 years, I want to be running in races. I don't want to be watching from the sidelines. I have all these great adventures on my bucket list. I want to be able to climb the Grand Tetons. I want to be able to, you know, climb Machu Picchu. So I better do something about it. I spent the next year and it's not really just the fact of all the weight that I lost. It's the fact that I regained my energy level. I regained my self-confidence. I mean, let's face it. What were the results? 
Well, let me tell you, <laughs> when I was 29 years old, I got married and I married a guy who was 39. Okay. That was when I hadn't even started working full-time at GMA yet. Three great kids, but didn't work out. <laughs> 20 years later, when I was 49 years old, I got married again. And again, I married a guy who was 39. <laughs> 10 years younger. <laughs> 49-year-old worked out much better. But you know, that didn't just happen. That happened because of the decision that I made in my life that I wanted to be the best I could be at whatever age that I was. So, man, I hit the ground running when I was 40. And I felt great and it's like all kinds of new possibilities opened up for me. Mm -hmm. So my everywhere we would go, people, of course, they watched me, you know, on the air go through this transformation. They were always asking me everywhere we would go, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? I think they thought I was going to give them that the secret pill that I took or something. <laughs> and my daughters, my teenage daughters, they're now in their 30s. They finally said, Mom, just write a book already. <laughs> so the people stop asking. So I did. And, um, you know, it was a bestseller. And when you have a bestseller, the publisher comes back to you and says, that was awesome. Write another one. <laughs> right. And I remember looking at my book agent then and saying, I don't know. You always feel like you squeeze every last drop out of your brain when you write a book. What am I going to write about next? And he said to me, you will always write about that which you want to know more about. Yes. And that's truly how every look, as I was leaving GMA, I wrote a bend in the road is not the end of the road, a book about change. It felt like it was only happening to me. But as I started researching it, I found out, you know, everybody has problem with change. And I wrote Had I Known because I was going through a breast cancer battle. And I had started this book way before the last book. And at that time, I think I had it titled Live Younger Longer. And after my cancer treatment, and I learned so much about my body and cells and all this and cell reproduction, I thought, it's not about looking younger or living younger. It's about understanding your body and how your body works and how what we eat affects our pancreas and our thyroid and our liver. And, and you need to find a way to talk about that in like layman terms that's accessible. Mm -hmm. And you need to talk about aging. Like, what is it that, remember that agent? What is it that you want to know more about right now? I want to know how to successfully age. And so I renamed the book. I threw out all the stuff that didn't count. And I started researching. So, I mean, it literally was a six-year span from the time I started. But as soon as I found out what it was I wanted to say, I mean, I could hardly get up from the laptop. It came, it came spilling out. And you yeah. also, it's interesting, you think like a doctor. There's actually one of your chapters, one of the chapter headings is think like a doctor. And I wonder if that comes from your late father, who was a surgeon and a pilot. And if you've almost done that consciously or subconsciously to honor him, because you really could have been a doctor, I think. You, you're a fabulous wow. TV host. I'm glad that you're, you are a TV host and we got to benefit from that. But I think you do think like a doctor. Well, I always thought I would be a doctor. My dad was a, a family practitioner when I was a, a little kid because that's what all doctors were. And then um, as things started changing in the medical industry, 
specialties just started kind of coming around, my dad became a surgeon because that was his skill set. That's what he was really great at. And then he started doing cancer surgery. And, you know, back in those days in the early 60s, there was no radiation. There was no chemotherapy. Radical mastectomy was the only thing a woman could do if she had breast cancer. And everywhere we would go, because my dad still saw families, you know, he knew everything about the family. He would know your risk factors because he took care of your mom and your dad and your uncle and everybody else. It was a totally different world. Everywhere we would go in town, my father would be approached always. And people would embrace him and say, oh, doc, thank you for saving my wife's life or whatever they would say. And like, why wouldn't I want to be that? I wanted to be that. And, but my dad was an avid private pilot. In fact, he and some other private pilots uh, built a, bought a bunch of property, built a small private airport just outside of Sacramento, California. Our house was at one end of the field. My house was literally built around an airplane hangar. Wow. You go down the hall, Jeff's room, my room, airplane hangar. And, you know, he would come home and open up those doors and we'd push the plane out and we would fly to Reno for, for dinner. I mean, that was our life. Um, but my dad used to fly around the country helping other surgeons with difficult cancer surgeries. Um, he used to speak for the American Cancer Society all the time. And he was flying back from speaking at a cancer convention in Southern California and crashed um, shortly after takeoff in Malibu Canyon. He was only 41 years old. Excuse me. He was 51 years old. My mom was 41. And I think about it, like when I turned 40, I thought, wow, this is what, how old my mom was when my dad died. She had so much life still in front of her. Um, and I think at that moment, it, was, it became even more important to me to follow in his footsteps. But a few years later, I was only 13 at that time. And I graduated from high school at 16. I'd skipped a couple of grades. And I went to work in the hospital that he had helped to found and, and build I found out pretty quickly that scalpels and stitches and needles were not going to be a part of my career. <laughs> Definitely not. I majored in psychology. I figured that's as close as I was going to get to medicine. Probably helped a lot in interviewing skills. But, you know, when I got diagnosed with breast cancer, it was like within 24 hours, I said, wait a minute. You just got the most amazing opportunity dropped in your lap. You you can now learn everything about breast cancer and the treatment of breast cancer, and you can disseminate it out to everybody. It's like you just took the baton from your dad. You can run it to the finish line. Uh. And it instantly changed me from a victim and a patient into an advocate. And that totally changed my breast cancer journey. I like sailed through it. I was... I felt strong and I felt purposeful and I felt like my dad was always looking down and saying, you know, take that ball and run it into the end zone, baby doll. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Isn't yeah. that incredible? That's your character though. This is your character mm -hmm. is you're an optimist. Yep. You might get that from your mother, Gladdy. I definitely did. Uh, she was a rose-colored uh, glasses, glasses <laughs> half full, right, person? Oh, yeah. Always look at life through your rose-colored glasses. Always hit your wagon to a star. <laughs> um, 
always plan a big party once a year so you really clean your house. I love that line. Um, let me, let me a couple of ones. Oh, even better. Tan fat is better than white fat. It's true. It is bang on. We call them gladiisms, but she was like living with a a positive thinking guru. Um, so she, I definitely got a lot of that glass half full girl from her. So fabulous. And and she was called glitzy gladi because she loved a little bit of gold. Oh, a little bit. <laughs> the only sneakers she ever owned was a pair of sneakers that were covered with gold sequins, <laughs> gold cowboy boots. That's the way to do it. I love that. Yeah. And a redhead. And that was her other motto. <laughs> you die until you die. You die. So true. What, what? So she was a redhead when I put her in that coffin in her white St. John suit with the gold trim and her little gold Chanel bag. When I got back home, I told my mother-in-law that what I, you know, that this was what my mom wanted to be buried in. Yes. And my mother-in-law said, you put a gold Chanel bag in the coffin. <laughs> I think that was perfect. I think that was perfect. I can't wait to delve into the book and we will, but I first would love Joan to take the audience back just for a moment and meet the 23-year-old Joan London, uh, who was hired as a trainee for KCRA's news department in 1973. And you quickly rose up the ranks, becoming a weather person, a reporter, an anchor. I just wanted to ask you, what was it like when you first entered that newsroom at 23 years old? Did you kind of know that you were embarking on the journey of a lifetime? I don't know if I can honestly say that. You know, I'd never even considered journalism because there weren't women coming out of communications courses at that point in time. There were a handful, Barbara Walters, I'm hard-pressed to even name anybody else. Um, there was one woman in, in my hometown of Sacramento. But one night, a guy was over, a friend of the family, who worked as an ad salesman at the NBC affiliate. And he said in the conversation was, when you're ending college, everybody, it always comes around to, what are you going to do, Joan, when you get out of college? And he said, you know, you really should consider TV news. And I was like, what? He said, I'm telling you. He said, I mean, just think, this was, you know, the early 70s when the women's movement was full blown. They were burning their bras on campuses and <laughs> suing the New York Times and everybody else for putting more women into positions. He said, the FCC is putting a lot of pressure on local stations to add women to their newscast. I think you should consider that. So I could have so easily let that passing comment go. <laughs> but the next morning, I picked up the phone and I called the news director at that station. And I got an appointment to go in. And I went in with my questions. What are the, you know, possibilities for women uh, at a, in television news, blah, blah, blah. And after five minutes, he said, well, clearly, you know how to write an interview. <laughs> and he said, let me take you into the studio and audition you. It's like, okay. So he took me in, auditioned me. I read this copy, which was really hard because the Vietnam War was on. It was like, oh, and there's no teleprompter in those days. Zero. Oh no, no prompt. <laughs> and so in the end, he said, I really think that you have potential. Um, of course, I don't have a job, but you know, you ought to, you ought to think about this. All right. That was very nice. So as I'm walking out of the building, the weatherman follows me out and in the parking lot made me an offer that would change my life forever. He said, you know, a few stations around the country are hiring weather girls. And I would like to make you Sacramento's first weather girl. Now I'm going to be honest, that didn't even sound remotely interesting. The weather? 
<laughs> I didn't know Zippo. I didn't know a cirrus cloud from a cumulus cloud, for God's sakes. But somehow, thank God, I, I, I knew an opportunity when I heard it. So I said yes. So I started basically interning for him. And after about six months, he called one morning and he said he, he wanted to put me on the air. And the, the bigwigs weren't buying it. And I was not open, uh, welcome with open arms, Judy. You know, back in those days, those guys, all white men, had worked at TV state, uh, uh, maybe newspapers, maybe a couple of radio stations, maybe smaller TV stations before they got to Sacramento. What? And I just walk in there <laughs> without having worked anywhere like that. And so nobody was open to this idea. So Harry, the weatherman, called me one morning and said. I just called in sick. You're going to be on today. No kidding. Oh, so I went in and I was on and he just kind of like pushed it through. I, I'd been doing a little bit of uh, weather on the radio and, you know, that's what started it out. And then when they started saying, oh, wait a second, like maybe we can use her other ways. They made me a consumer reporter. And then like out of the blue, a couple months later, like this was like a supersonic speed. They said, we'd like you to anchor the new news and produce it. So all of a sudden I was finding stories. I was, I would go in every morning and watch the Today Show. That's how they, I would start my day because I could use news reports off of their show. So I would have to like just write an intro and I could take those, those reports. And that's, I mean, it was like, you know, so all of a sudden uh, other stations started finding out that there's this female anchor and I was getting offers from all over the place. And I didn't know what to make of those offers. Like, oh, was the ABC affiliate in Atlanta better than the NBC affiliate <laughs> in Detroit? And they were coming in from big cities. I went back to that guy, the ad salesman and said, what do I do with all of these? And he said, there's a guy who used to work here that now works for ABC in New York. Let's call him. He'll tell you what you should do with these offers. So we called him and he said, if you're getting all those offers, I want to fly you into New York. Maybe I want to hire you for our flagship station here in New York City. So like within a week, I was on a plane, came into New York. Of course, I didn't have an agent or anything and went in and, and <laughs> was offered the job. I'd only been in the business like for maybe even not even two years. And here I was in New York City as a, I had never gone out on a an actual story because I'd never been a reporter at KCRA where you'd go out to a fire or a murder or something. Sure. Like the basic, the basic things you, you were yeah. catapulted so to I the top. To go out and I basically <laughs> learned from the crews. You know, I was, I learned quickly, be really nice to the crew. And back in those days, you had a sound man, a lighting man and a cameraman because everything was done on film. So you were basically like shooting little movies um, but yes. you know, so that, that's kind of how that I was propelled <laughs> and each time there's a motto. My husband always says, if you want to know about Joan London, here's a page out of the Joan London playbook. <laughs> Whenever anyone asks if you can do something, <laughs> just say yes, and then go figure out how to do it. Yeah, uh, that's so how true. I did that first job. That's how I came to New York City. That's how two years later when Good Morning America plucked me away from WABC. I said, yes. Each time I've just said, yeah, sure, of course I can do that. 
Exactly. It's it's like my kid got into Harvard. Now what? (laughs) You'll you'll figure it out, right? So you did have the best job in the world. Uh, You were the longest running host, really, ever of good good ever in history. Twenty years on Good Morning America, so impressive. And you covered Joan some of the most major news events, including Prince Charles' wedding to Lady Diana, the Winter Olympics in '84. You reported from 26 countries, covered four presidents, five Olympic games, two royal weddings. You actually are one of the only people who are allowed to interview Prince Charles during his 1983 visit to the U.S. And you've interviewed a host of celebrities and legends like Mary Tyler Moore, Celine Dion, Bette Midler, Goldie Hawn. I know I'm probably leaving out many. Robin Williams, Audrey Hepburn, wow. Charlton Heston, Henry Kissinger, presidents, princes, and even some of our favorite mindfulness heroes on this show, like Deepak Chopra. And, <laughs> oh, so amazing. And John Kabat-Zinn, who I adore. Oh, yes. One of my favorite authors. Wherever you go, there you are. That's a book that will never get old. And it's all about, we all wear this, the glasses, our lenses of everything that's ever happened to us and all of our hopes, our fears, our biases. And when we look at something in life, we see it through those through that lens, which is not necessarily how the guy next to you sees it. And that's such an eye-opener. And that was probably the first time I learned about non-reactive behavior, that you don't, you you can choose not to react. Like that was life-changing. What do you mean I can choose whether or not I, I react? And, and it's not the easiest thing to do to learn non-reactive behavior, but it's worth a try. And so, so empowering and so powerful to be able to do yeah. it, isn't it? And I got to tell you, I mean, um, I could turn the camera around and show you the pictures on this wall. I mean, um, Paul Newman, Sylvester Stallone, Burt Reynolds, Michael Douglas, Danny DeVito, um, I mean, just, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And, you know, you, I, the thing that uh, you said, Mary Tyler Moore, I, I got to tell you the day that Mary Tyler Moore came on the show, cause she was like an idol of mine and she p- played a news reporter on TV, but I watched her on the Dick Van Dyke show. Come yes, on. Yes. I'm old enough to remember that. And she, I remember the morning that I was going to be interviewing her and I was like nervous and I saw her walk in the door, the back door of the studio and walk over and sit down on the sofa on the interview set. And as I walked over to her, as I walked up to her before I could even say hi, she said, oh my gosh, Joan, I watch this show every morning. I'm such a fan and I'm so nervous. I'm actually here. I was like, what? <laughs> what? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? I mean, those are the moments. I remember being at the White House and I used to get invited all the time. And I remember one time um, Ronald Reagan said to me, well, we watch or maybe it was Nancy. I don't know. Well, we watch your show every single morning because you have our Ronnie on your show because Ronnie used to Ronald Jr. used to be one of our correspondents. And I remember going to the White House. Um, I took my mom a lot of times with me. And she would be so proud, you know. And I remember we went to the very last party that um, it was a Christmas party that for George Bush Sr. before he was going to leave the White House because he had lost the race, thought he was going to win and lost that race. And I took my mom and we're 
standing in an area listening to the, I don't know, the army band, the Navy band, whatever it is, playing some Christmas songs. And Barbara Bush, who's just the most delightful person in the entire world, may she rest in peace. Um, she kind of came over and sidled up to me and said, hey, you want to bring your mom upstairs? Let's go up to our private quarters after. This song's gonna, This is the last song. It'll end in a few minutes. I, George already knows he's going to take your mom by the arm. So the song ends, and my mom, all of a sudden, George Bush, the president of the United States, like puts his arm through hers, and um, Barbara had said, you know, there's an elevator right behind us. They will go up in that. And Barbara takes my arm, and we go up in the elevator. And, I mean, truth be told, I'd never been in the private quarters at that point. I Maybe she thought I had been, but so we go up, we sit down, and um, I remember the first thing President Bush said to my mom, you know, your daughter is a terrific journalist and has asked me some pretty tough questions because that's what you have to do as a journalist, but she's always been so wonderful to my babs. And anyone who's nice to my babs, I love them. And she's always been nice to my babs. It was like, like, and then then Barbara took us on a tour, took my mom on a tour and showed her all around the place. I mean, it was, uh, you know, those are, those are the amazing back, back of the, of the building kind of things that you get to go see. It's just absolutely incredible. I can't get over the, the Mary Tyler Moore moment. We're going to go on a short commercial break. When we come back, I'd love to talk about your co-hosts on Good Morning America. We'll be right back with Joan London right after this. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back with the incredible Joan London, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. Joan, your first co-host on GMA was David Hartman, and then in 1987, Charles Gibson, who really became your longstanding host. Yeah. And the audience loved you guys. And I was blown away by that interview that you both did on the Oprah Winfrey show. And you came on and that entire audience, that was a very long standing ovation. I I just remember that. And you could feel it like people were so thrilled and so excited. What was your relationship like with Charlie Gibson? And what are your memories of that glorious time? I think that kind of a standing ovation and that kind of a reaction to us is because it was a wonderful, um, almost brother-sister, certainly best friends. I will tell you, when he first came in the very first day to just put his stuff in the office, he came into my office, he closed the door, and he said, I have a deal to make with you, London. I said, okay. He said, let us make a deal that we will never one-up each other 
We will never steal stories from each other. Let's show America that a man and a woman can sit next to each other, work together as equals. I said, whoa, I'll take that deal. Uh, and he ne- he never faltered from that. Like he he always used to say we were like an old married couple. We could finish each other's sentence sentences, but we didn't have sex. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like but it. we really could. Like we could read each other. And, you know, we were like brother and sister in that if if I noticed that he had got he had one brown sock and one blue sock on because he dressed in the dark at 3.30 in the morning. I would be sure as soon as we opened that show, hey, take a shot of Charlotte's feet. I mean, kind of, and people loved that because they knew that we were, we had that incredible bond together. So incredible. His birthday is March 9th and my birthday is March 9th. So I thought that was a, a cool, fun fact. We share a birthday yeah, yeah, yeah. and very good combination. I don't know if you're into astrology, but you're uh, September 19th. Is that correct? Yes, I am. And so very lovely with Pisces. So, uh, Virgo, yeah. so <laughs> but um, anyway, Virgo don't believe in it. So you probably don't believe in it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but I, I also love, Joan, your Facebook lives. They're so wonderful. Oh. And you did one recently with Charles Gibson. What was that like? Did the memories just come flooding back? You know something? That might have been the two things, the two Facebook lives I've done that have had the most people on and the most reaction was Charlie Gibson and Michael Bolton. Because they're, you know, people people who love Michael Bolton just love Michael Bolton. Um, He befriended me. I was one of the first interviews that he ever did when Time, Love, and Tenderness was coming out. He was so nervous. He was like sweating. <laughs> and so they said, go into the green room and try to make Michael Bolton, you know, feel like a little more comfortable. And he knew that. So then when I was divorcing, he called me, anything you need. I just went down this road. It sucks, you know. Um, and so I started uh, hosting all of his Michael Bolton charities events every year and have done so for like the last 25 years. And we found each other nannies from time to time. Like, you know, it's that... <laughs> that parent relationship. Um, but with Charlie, uh, you know, people, he would die if he ever heard me say like, he's kind of a ladies man. Cause he would be the, that would be the last thing <laughs> he would ever think of himself as, or even wanted, want to be thought of. Cause he was just this brilliant guy. I remember we did the first show with him down um, in Florida on a beach. I remember he came out in his suit and his tie. And I'm like in a, like a beach outfit. And we opened the show. And as soon as we opened the show, I said, Charlie, we're on a beach. So, and I took and I started loosening his tie. And I thought the guy's probably thinking, what did I get myself into? But we had dinner the night before with his dad who had come down to see his first day, you know, on this big new job. And I said, what was he like as a kid? And his dad said, when he was eight years old, he was already reading the congressional record. And he knew everything about every congresswoman and man and senator, everything. And he was, but he didn't wear it. Yeah, he was, he was. was, Almost self-deprecating, but certainly incredibly modest, never talked down to anybody, never even talked at you. He he was engaging. I mean, I used to see him on um, some live remotes. He was our Capitol Hill correspondent for ABC. And he knows this, that I'm the one who said to the uh, execs at GMA, we ought to have Charlie Gibson replace David because we were looking for a replacement. And I really pushed hard for him. And he knew it. That's why he came in and said, 
I know part of the reason I'm here is you. Let's make sure we have a great working relationship. That's so awesome. Yeah, I, it is. I, I, I noticed, Joan, even, and you're an unbelievable host, and you've done this, you know, your whole life, and you're just so grace, graceful and wonderful at it. I even notice on the Facebook Lives, you're very gracious. You say hi to everybody. You read all the names. I don't know how you see their names. I have, <laughs> I have to like peer right in to, to see. You must have very good eye, eyesight. But uh, it's just lovely the way you even handle the Facebook Lives. It's fascinating, you know? But I love the connection, Judy. I, in fact, when I left GMA, that was the thing that upset me. That was the thing that I, um, that saddened me was that, you know, we didn't have Facebook in those days, we didn't have, like once I left the show, all those people had always written me letters and, you know, watched me and that connection just got torn apart and taken away. So when the day finally came, the Facebook came around and my husband saw me like going on Facebook and having all these people say, oh my God, hi, hi, hi. He said, you're not going to be able to answer every single one of them, you know, but I got to tell you, I give it a really good try. You give it a good college try. I see yeah. that. It's it's so wonderful to and see. And I love that. I cherish that. I value that connection. It's really, really incredible. So leaving, I know, was difficult, but you handled it with grace and aplomb. And you handled it with, I, I want to say, the dignity and grace of an Audrey Hepburn uh. and, and of a Joan London, I'm going to say. You really did. And you didn't, and you, and you could have not done it that way, but oh, you really I, did. I could have been the woman scorned. I could have gotten really, because I, I didn't leave of my own volition, um, but I didn't talk about that. Uh, they decided to replace me with a 30-year-old lookalike. And um, I decided to leave with my head held high and not leave. You know, there's always that saying, uh, never burn a bridge. You don't know if you might have to cross it again. Uh, I was going off to other jobs. I didn't want anybody to, I didn't want the world to see me as that person that they took off the air because she turned 45, God forbid. Right. right. And um, so I just decided to leave with dignity and I'm really glad I did. I have no regrets. I never even ever talked about it until the book. That was the first time I talked about it. And that's what, I mean, 20 years, more than 20 years later. Um, and and I'm very glad that I handled it the way I handled it. Mm-hmm. So, so wonderful. And by the way, Audrey Hepburn, you brought up Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that was another woman who is to me an idol. And I think the reason why we all love her is because she was this natural beauty. She wasn't a made-up painted beauty. There was nothing artificial, um, yeah, artificial about her. She was very understated, very a quiet, beautiful, feminine elegance. I remember every time I interviewed her, she always she had a tendency to wear these like kind of ankle tight pants <laughs> with little ballet slippers and some kind of a little sweater set. And it was always so understated and yet looked so damn good. <laughs> and to me, that's that understated elegance that we should all aspire to be. Well, you've got it. I'm telling you, you you've definitely got that. So you were dealt this devastating blow of hearing that you had triple negative breast cancer and like everything else in your life, you dealt with it with courage and grace. And in, in your own inimitable way, you took it on with positivity, hope, and optimism. 
Can you take us back to what gave you the strength? I mean, you, you talk about you wanted to help people. Uh, and I think that's what this book really does as well. Is you, I feel like yeah. you are driven very relentless, relentlessly yes. to help prevent rather than cure illness, yeah. to empower women to be the healthiest and best people that they can be. Wouldn't that be a wonderful goal to achieve in this country that we can start preventing illness instead of treating it once we had it? I didn't really know that much about breast cancer because admittedly, I just never had had a friend or a relative that had ever gone through it. Um, And I'd never spoken at any big breast cancer events because they tend to get people who've had it. So I didn't really know that much about it. In fact, when my breast cancer surgeon said, you're triple negative, I thought, oh, good, at least I'm negative to three things. Then she said, no, 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 you don't seem to understand. There are like three buckets, estrogen, progesterone, and HER2. Those have uh, treatments you're negative to all of those. So the only thing you can do is, you know, probably six to nine months of really aggressive chemotherapy and radiation. And admittedly, my first question was, wait a minute, does that mean I'm going to lose my hair? Which of course it did. But I can remember when I, I had a clean mammogram. I think it's important to say when I went that year for my annual mammogram, I had a clean 3D mammogram. So the best mammogram you can get Everybody have a 3D. It's so much better. And I'm pretty sure most insurance covers it now. Um, But it can see a lot more. But unfortunately, if you have very dense breast tissue, no mammogram is going to be able to necessarily see cancer because dense tissue shows up white on a mammogram. Mm -hmm. And so does cancer. So it can be very easily masked. I didn't know any of this. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, about the year before that, mammogram, I had been sent to do a story with um, another show I was doing at the time called Health Corner. I was interviewing Susan Love, who wrote the breast book about mammograms. And she, of course, said, you know, you do get your annual mammograms, don't you, Miss London? And I said, oh, yeah, but I find them so nerve wracking because I'm the one in the waiting room who's always called back in for more pictures. And you freak out when you hear that and you say, oh my God, did you see something bad? But you know, they just always say the same thing. No, you just have such dense breast tissue. It's hard to see anything at all. And with that, she said, wait a minute, if you have dense breast tissue, then you have to also have an ultrasound. If I hadn't done that interview that day, I would not have known to get that ultrasound. But I got it because of that interview. And 10 minutes after a clean mammogram, they saw my cancer on an ultrasound. And it was way back against my chest wall, which means it would be a long time before I would have ever felt, been able to feel something. And likely by that time, I wouldn't still be here. Like I had a, the kind of cancer triple negative is, is called an interval cancer. And it can happen really anywhere in your body. It just happens to happen in your breast. It's not like, you know, the estrogen driven kind of breast cancers. And had I not had that ultrasound that day and I'm not being dramatic, I don't know if I'd be here doing this interview right now. Thank God that you did. And, and yeah. you're, prevent, you're helping so many women from your talks yeah. and your books and all that you do to do the same and to, to, to be on the lookout for these things. And it's, it's really, it's really so incredible. I, and I'm so happy that you're, you're well and that you're great. Yeah. Ladies need to know everybody listening, ladies, you've got to know your breast density. It's four categories. You're either in a very fatty breast 
which is kind of normal, you know, over age. That's why the breasts start to droop. The almost completely fatty breasts, those are fine. Once you get into three and four, and if you're in group four, very, very dense breast tissue, you have to get an ancillary test. You can't just be getting mammograms because you can go in, get a clean mammogram, but that does not mean that you're not walking out with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. It's it's really, uh, it's really incredible. I want to go back to the book for a second and there's so many wonderful things in it and I'll, ne- I'll never get to all of it, but I, <laughs> that's why you all have to get this book. Why did I come into this room? A candid conversation about age aging by Joan London. Cause it's, it's just got so much. Um, but there's one thing that it, that it talks about, which is what we all fear the most. And that is oh. forgetfulness, which might be the scariest aspect yeah. of aging because we worry it might be the beginning of dementia. Can you just speak a little bit about this fear of forgetfulness and what we can do to combat this? Well, of all the things that occur as we go through the aging process, like one day you have a waistline, the next day you don't. Like what happened? Um, and that's a natural thing that happens. But when it happens to you, it feels like you did something. Like, And, and I swear to God, I did not eat more Tostitos last year. Um, <laughs> Or the leaky bladder. I mean, that's a weak pelvic floor. It happens. It happens right after you have babies, and then it happens as you start to age. It's natural. There are all these things that are going to happen to you, but and if you don't find out why they're happening and the fact that they're happening to every other woman out there, you get the sense that you're kind of falling apart and there's something wrong with you. But I think the thing that is the scariest by far is forgetfulness. I mean, that's why, that's why I chose, and look at the, the picture I use, kind of like, what? <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to use a beauty shot. I want to use a picture that denotes like, where the hell am I? So, um, and you know what? Just because you walk into a room and you can't remember what you came in there for, you can't find your keys, or you walk out of the mall and you can't find your car. This does not mean it's the beginning of dementia. It doesn't, that, in fact, it's probably not. It's probably just age-related um, shrink, shrinking of the hippocampus and thus forgetfulness. You, you can hold on to all those memories that have been down in there. In fact, they're like all over your brain. But the ones that were just made five minutes ago or 10 minutes ago, those have a harder time imprinting as we kind of start aging. So it's hard to remember your thought from five minutes ago. But it's good to know that that doesn't necessarily mean that it's dementia. And then I just devote a lot of the book on all the things that you can do to slow down the shrinking of the hippocampus and to the building of neurons in your brain. Because, you know, they used to think that we just had so many, you know, million um, neurons in our brain and we were born with that and then they started to die off. And now we know that's not true. Neurogenesis goes on all the time and we can create neurogenesis by challenging our brain mostly by cardio, by exercise, that's really what sends the nutrients and the oxygen and the blood up to the brain and creates really great neurons that are viable that can attach to your central system and slow down that shrinking. It's kind of think of it as a muscle like any that you'd work on anywhere else in your body. You can build it up. 
Yes. Yes. You flex it and it gets stronger and stronger. There's so many fabulous yep. tips in the book about how you can do this and how you can achieve this. And uh, I love your section on uh, six sure signs that you're aging. There's so many wonderful exercises in the book, Joan, and tips and techniques. And um, one of the ones that I love is um, you suggest that we imagine what age we really are. Close your eyes and imagine what age you really are instead of your chronological age. I found that so empowering to do. Can you tell us about that and how that can really help? Because I think it almost makes you feel more empowered that, wait a minute, I really am 28. I know I'm 60, but I really am 28 in my brain. And by the way, I really am 70. Um, I mean, I can't even wrap my brain around that, but apparently there's a birth certificate that clarifies the question. But when I close my eyes, I am 45 years old. I guess that's where I got off the age train. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, and it, it actually helps you. I think there's yes. something about that exercise. I can't even put my finger on it. When you read about it in the book, you just feel better. And this last birthday was a bit tough for me. And Nothing. I just found that number 60 to be a little bit hot on the high side. But you know what? That, you know what? I, Let's think of it as levels, Judy. Let's yes. think of it as levels. You're at the 50 level and then the 60 level. And now I'm at the 70 level. And that sounds so much more badass. You know, I like so that. I like longer. that. I like. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You're terrific. And I also love your wonderful exercise about interviewing a family member on yeah. video or audio, just so you have all these wonderful stories and anecdotes and important medical information. Uh, like I want to send the book to so many people just for, for that, even for mm -hmm. that exercise. You call it capturing your family story. Yeah. Yeah. And do it. Don't put it off. Because I went out, I remember, I never knew my dad as an adult. You know, I was 13 when he died. So I went out and, and made appointments with a bunch of the doctors that were his colleagues and nurses who had worked alongside of him at the hospital. And he, I interviewed them. Those interviews are some of the most valuable possessions I have. I learned so many fantastic things about my dad I never would have known. And I couldn't ask my mom at that point because she had gotten dementia and she just really couldn't answer them. So do it while you still can. While you still can. Your chapters on happiness are wonderful. Again, it reminded me of your mother, Gladys, who wore rose-colored glasses and yep. other inspirational women in your life who've instilled much of that positivity in you. And you've said happiness is a choice. How lovely. Absolutely. Happiness is a choice. Reacting to somebody is a choice. Quite honestly, stress is a choice. I mean, I've had times where I'm like, and then I'll stop. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, wait a second, do I really want to go down that rabbit hole? No. <laughs> okay, then I'm not going to. And it is our choice. We don't have to go there. You have so many wonderful happiness choices, happiness tips in the book. I love them. I also love the chapter headings. They're hilarious. Like I just literally would laugh out loud every minute. Why can't I lose weight? Like I lose my keys, phone and sex drive. <laughs> I mean, well, how about again? <laughs> I want to be cremated. It's my last chance for a smoking hot body. <laughs> It's so fantastic. And you love reading. And I'm sure that's partly why you're such a prolific writer. You've written 10 books now. Do you have a favorite time of day to write? Or is it hard to write? Is it enjoyable to write? Like writing this book that took six years? Was there a time of day that really made it work for you? What's your writing process? It's really when that 
that thought happens in your head. Oh my God, this is what I want to say. This is what I want to impart. This is how I want to make my mark. This is how I want to help other people. And then you just kind of get bitten by that bug and, and you go for it. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't allow myself to stop and read and I'm a prolific reader. I mean, I just love reading books and, but I didn't allow myself to read during that time because it put me at my desk and it put me at my laptop. Um, you know, and I haven't started the next book because I haven't decided exactly what that important thing is. And uh, it will come. And when it comes, I'll be right back here writing again. And I love the process. It's, it's so wonderful. That's, that, that's half of it. There's so many other wonderful things. You can catch Joan London on her PBS television series, Second Opinion, on her podcast. She has a Washington Post podcast series called Caring for Tomorrow on the Future of Healthcare. And I, I just want to say very briefly about the power of um, the the fear that you had of public speaking. And now you're uh, a keynote speaker 20 times a year. You not only are not afraid of it, you love it and relish it. Can you just tell me briefly what it is, how you were able to get over your fear and how your fear became one of your passions? It used to just, I'd break out. I mean, I just was so afraid of it. And when I left GMA... I went on tour with Tony Robbins in venues with like 26,000 people. It was kind of like baptism by fire. But I'm a walking example that you can turn a complete fear into a complete passion. And let me just say, I'm venturing into new territory again. I just accepted a faculty position mm. at Lehigh University. Uh, and I'm going to be a visiting professor. I'll teach population health in the media. So I'll be up in front of a class of 50 oh. young college minds <laughs> asking questions good for the brain Marvelous. i'm doing exactly Marvelous. what the professionals tell oh, you to do that's so fantastic yeah i also love joan and i've seen this in this whole interview your attitude of gratitude is one of the best messages in the book yeah <laughs> there's so much more i could do two interviews i hope <laughs> you're going to come back for your next book back but i want to again. i would love that what is bliss for joan london um probably curling up with a good book in the middle of the day and not worrying about somebody coming in and catching me reading <laughs> and not up and doing something in the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> That's so fantastic. You are truly so delightful. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you and get a copy uh, of your book and books? I'm at John London on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn, uh, people leaving messages and requests all the time at my website, um, joanlondon.com. Uh, you can, on Facebook, I'm also on Second Opinion with Joan London. If you come over there, we're always putting new information out or joanlondonbook.com. Uh, but you can get the book anywhere you buy books. They're on, it's on every single platform. Um, you can w listen to the podcast wherever you listen to all your podcasts and look at your local listings to find out when our show runs uh, on PBS. Or you can also go to secondopinion-tv.org and all the episodes are there. It's so fantastic. I, I want to thank you so much, Joan London, for being our exclusive guest on today's show. It's really been delightful talking to you. There's so much great stuff in this book, everyone. It's Why Did I Come Into This Room? A Candid Conversation About Aging. And again, I, I'm just going to end with this. I love your whole section on the power of positivity, the power of the smile, the power of laughter, and how all of these actually strengthen your immune system yep. and make you healthier and give you more yep. wellness. It's just chock full of so many goodies. You're a true inspiration. 
Thank you, Joan. Thank you. We are going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss when we come back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. In Bliss News, we are so excited to announce that we are giving away a signed copy of Why Did I Come Into This Room? A Candid Conversation About Aging, written by acclaimed broadcast journalist and the incredible Joan London. And to win a copy, all you have to do is visit us at the Bliss Minute on Instagram for all the contest details. The contest is running until Thursday, July 2nd at 6 p.m. I would like to thank my exclusive guest, Joan London, for being on the show today. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center, and to everyone here at Zoomer. This show has been recorded by Squadcast. I'd like to close out the show by quoting some of Joan London's favorite sayings in her marvelous book, Why Did I Come Into This Room? Here are just a few of these wonderful thoughts. Be somebody who makes everybody feel like a somebody. Don't focus on how stressed you are. Focus on how blessed you are. And each new day is another chance to change your life. For all of us here at Finding Your Bliss, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.